everyone. My name is Mark Vina, and welcome to the Smart Tech Check podcast, where we cover all tech topics that are smart home, home automation, security, and console gaming related. We pretty much discuss anything that's consumer tech topic um, related. Um, today is Tuesday, April 6, 2021. Baseball season is off to a great start um, for a lot of people who are excited to watch baseball again. My Yankees are two and two, as I was corrected a few minutes ago from one of the uh, podcast folks that you'll be listening to shortly. But with any, uh, without any further ado, let me bring them up on the, on the screen here so you can see their smiling faces. And with a magical cl click here, I've got here Stuart Walpin, Rob Pegarero, and John Quain. You guys are on mute, so you'll have to take yourself off the mute button. And Stuart, we'll start with you. Sure, Walpin. I'm a longtime technology freelancer. I've uh, been covering CE since the early 80s, and I am the kind of, sort of, unofficial historian for the Consumer Technology Association. Very, very good, Stuart. And you didn't really imply that you're that old, but I, we all know differently. When I see your uh, your vaccine um, uh, credentials, that tells you how, how old you are and if you've had the vaccine or not. Rob, who are you? I've never I'm, met you before, so I'm glad you just... <laughs> I just showed up here. I'm Rob Piguero. I'm a freelance tech journalist based outside of Washington, D.C. You can find my work in such places as Fast Company, USA Today, Forbes, Wirecutter, and many other quality publications. I'm also a Washington Nationals fan, uh, enjoying our belated home opener, which uh, started with Max Scherzer coughing up a home run on the first pitch of the game. Go Nats. I like the way you said quality publications versus low quality publications. It's nice. Yeah, it depends on the rate, you know. <laughs> John. Who Hi. Are you? Good to see everybody again. Uh, I'm John Quain. I write for the New York Times and Tom's Guide and Gizmodo and AARP. And I cover everything from cybersecurity all the way to automotive technology and uh, transportation. So I cover the whole gamut. And that's. CES used to be twice a year, so I'm, I'm old enough to remember when it was twice a year. <clears throat> so not quite. It's not 50 years, just saying. <laughs> and, and, you know, John, you've always fooled me. You told me you were 29 years old, so, you know. Right, exactly. I know it's the, the hair product you use. It just makes you look a lot. Just reverse those two numbers. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not waste any time here. Let me pull up my little topics panel here. And that will come up in a second here. I'm going to add that to the stream here. And a lot of interest. This is going to be an interesting podcast because there's a lot of interesting topics here that um, I, I'm going to be. I'm going to be actually very curious to see what the opinions of, of certain folks are <laughs> on some of these topics. But without any further ado, let's hit the um, first one, and that is Google beats Oracle. Really, Mary Ellison. Um, and and I, the reason why I say that is that. Um, as a lot of folks um, probably know, over the last day or so, there was an interesting Supreme Court ruling. I'm going to let um, Rob start the topic off and explain exactly what was decided, so then I can attack him after he explains what his position is. <laughs> but Rob, why don't you uh, give us kind of an overview of, of what the big announcement, what the big uh, Supreme Court decision was all about? Yeah, this ruling that came out Monday ended a very long-running case, which started with Oracle alleging that Google infringed copyright by re-implementing what's called an application programming interface when it essentially created the Android operating system. Google wanted to make it easier for programmers who use the Java language that Sun developed and then Oracle owned when they bought Sun. And that is something that 
is done all the time in software development. You want to make things easier, you reuse someone else's framework. You're not copying the code that does the work. You're copying how you tell a program to tell another program to provide a function. Super common, and until this case came around, nobody was making a case out of it. It went back and forth multiple times. First, there was a federal court where the judge actually taught himself Java and said, you can't copyright this API at all. There's no case here, boom. Oracle appealed, and because they'd started by throwing in some patent claims, this eventually got kicked up to a court in DC called the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which long ago lost the plot and basically has yet to meet an intellectual property claim it didn't like. Uh, after appeal and further appeal, I'm really simplifying this, it finally went to the Supreme Court and the court held, they said, let's just take the simplest way to look at this. Is it a fair use for Google to re-implement these few, Google, these few Java APIs to make things easier? And the court said, yes, six to two ruling. Uh, the only two that dissented were Alito and Thomas. Yes. So, you know, you've got Brett Kavanaugh and Sonia Sotomayor agreeing on things. I think it's we can say it's nonpartisan ruling. Has it stopped a lot of people in D.C. from kind of losing their minds and saying, this is a giveaway to Google, blah, blah, blah. Saying Google wins is, I think, fundamentally inaccurate because if Google had lost, they'd be fine. They got lots of lawyers. They got compliance resources. Startups, anyone who relies on code, who has to, you know, depend on some other company's API, they would be in a lot of legal jeopardy. So the court did the right thing. Okay, before I express my opinion about that, I mean, <laughs> you probably have seen the, the the body language that I'm not sure I would use the phrase they did the right thing. But anyway, John, please opine. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I agree with Rob. Look, this is one of these ridiculous cases. The entire software business, everything, everybody uses APIs. That's what you do, right? In fact... You, you know, they're all, all supposed to be shareable in a way. And nothing would work if you didn't do that. Um, literally nothing would work. So it, it was a ridiculous case to begin with. It's also to give you a sense of like how much of Java they actually used here. It's about four, four tenths of 1% yep. the entire code of Java. And also, I'm just saying, Java is not one of the most respected pieces out there right now anyway. So it's not like, you know, they were just making it work with everything. So it was one of these ridiculous cases. Why on earth it even got this far is just a big waste of time. Rob's right. Look, if, if Larry, who I respect as a sailor, but not so much as a CEO, <laughs> right? Um, great sailor, not so much CEO. Um, Look, if they had won, it would have been disaster for everybody. Forget about startups. Just like it would be a nightmare. So um, it, it was just a ridiculous thing to begin with. So finally, something went right in one of these decisions. Well, well, the only thing I will say before we get to Stuart is that the, the code that was copied, and I agree with you from a percentage standpoint, it's a relatively, it's a very, not relatively, a very small part um, piece of code. It was actually, it was verbatim, Stolen. It wasn't, you know, a lot of times when code is borrowed, I'll use that phrase generously. So the person who's doing the borrowing, borrowing, uh, will try to make some type of modification to it to kind of to, to make a case that the code is theirs. But in this case, the code that was copied was copied verbatim. And I'm not sure I, I'm, I'm not I'm completely. Uh, hey, listen, I am not a big fan of Larry Ellison for a whole bunch of different reasons. <laughs> is anybody, honestly? 
Well, that's he's a, a really good sailor. He's a good, and he's a nice guy as a sailor. That's a different, that's a different podcast, but you know, but I, I think that th this opens up the door, you know, when you, and I think that you saw that the, the, the uh, dissent by Alito and by Thomas, that this could open up the door for other types of claims, even on non API code. And I agree with it, you know, without the API, you can't get applications to work. But if, if the person who wrote that, uh, that, um, that content can't get, be properly compensated under um, patent law. It, it, a lot of wacky things could happen down the road. It could, it could be a lot of um, unintended consequences. That's all I'm. That's I'm just a bit concerned about. But maybe I'm alone in that. You know, you you feel uh, you guys feel obviously that's not a problem. But uh, Stuart, what's your thoughts? Well, several topics today are going to hinge on the law. And as we well know in the technology center, the law lags 10 to 20 years behind the technologies that they're trying to regulate. And on top of that, you're working with legislative bodies who, by and large, don't understand technology. And in this particular case, I think what the, if, I re, if I read the decision correctly, the court decided on a, using the fair use doctrine. Yes. In, in many other forms of media, the fair use doctrine is very minutely and precisely defined, which means you can use somebody's videotape if you only do 10 seconds worth of it or something along that line. Uh, when you play a song on television, as long as you don't play more than 10 seconds or five, whatever it is, you don't have to pay royalties to BMI or ASCAP. In this case, there is no fair use case law for computer code. And so the, for the court trying, and the court has said, there's no law on this, which is why they decided the way they did. There is no fair use laws or rules that have been legislated that there is, allow there the is, court to hang the decision. There is now. There is now. Right. No, I don't know that the court actually decided on, that can only be decided by the legislature. I think they decided in this particular case, but I don't know if this rule is going to be precedent or binding on future cases. And this is a it's whole the Supreme Court. You can't get more binding than that. No, yes, you can. Because a lot of decisions from the court, if you read even some recent decisions, they very narrowly decide cases based on only particularly set of circumstances. And they often state that this is not binding or precedent broadly, but defined only in this case. This is the way that the court gets out of setting or becoming becoming what the legislature should be or what what people like to say activist judges of setting the law so i think in this particular case i haven't i haven't read it closely enough to know whether or not the court has said this is binding or whether or not they're calling on the legislature to actually legislature to actually set what the fair use doctrine would be for computer code and how anybody is going to decide that especially a congress who has a hard time figuring out how facebook makes money it, it's just going to be on me. And this is going to come up, by the way, in the next topic that we have. The same exact issue of the court not wanting to set the rules of the road and only deciding very narrowly based on a very specific set of circumstances. So I did read this from top to bottom. And Breyer's opinion, I think it is pretty sweeping that fair use is going to cover pretty much any reimplementation of an API. Again, not code that does the actual work, right. but using someone else's framework. Uh, the analogy he uses at one point is the Dewey Decimal System as an organizing structure for a library. 
uh, I've compared it to, you know, you're not copying the entire Lego block. You're just reduplicating the bumps on it that help Legos clip together. And, and in a sense, it's returning us to where we were. The judicial activism was the judges in the lower court, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, who decided, let's make up an entirely new form of intellectual property that has never before existed. And I think we can kind of all agree that their solution would have upended a lot of existing uh, precedents, norms, whatnot. It would have created a lot of more work for lawyers, which I don't think the software industry needs at all. Uh, and in this case, the court could have gone further and said, there's no copyright here at all. You know, the same way you can't copyright a recipe, which is a list of instructions and a list of ingredients. They'd say there, there's no copyright in an API and other system of organization. They didn't go that far. And that's what some people wanted them to do. It also would have played hell in the consumer marketplace because all of a sudden everybody would have like restricted what their products could be compatible with in order to not get sued. Yeah. 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 The whole history of personal tech would be vastly different if we'd had this ruling come down the other way in like 1980. Do we even have the IBM PC in that case? Right. Well, but the only thing I want to say about this, and then I want to move on to the next topic, is I just wonder just the way we phrase the topic on the slide here to the to the uh, to the uh, right is that it's interesting how the media reacted to this because they reacted to it i think in the way that the the, the uh, this topic was was presented to me when i posted it on the slide and that is this more about google versus larry ellison versus versus the case law um about the topic itself i almost think the media kind of celebrate all you know Regardless of how you feel about Google, uh, it's nice that we know Google we Oracle. It's good SEO. It's yeah. always about wins and losses. It's always that's what it's about to get the headline. You can hate Google and still like this ruling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can still hate Google, but still like the ruling. I'm going to get a T-shirt for Raw that says that. <laughs> okay, uh, more Supreme Court fun. Uh, the Facebook topic, I think I'm going to tee this up for Stuart because I, I know that you have some interesting views on that. Well, again, the court decided very, very narrowly based upon what the definition, again, the ruling on this was that apparently Facebook was calling people to check yeah. on their security accounts and somebody sued them under the robo Act. Right. Yeah. And the court decided for Facebook because the Facebook was not using the exact methodology, which apparently nobody is using, for robocalling, which is accessing lists and doing auto-dialing. And because Facebook was not doing that under this very narrow ruling that they said that Facebook was not in um, – they were sued for the wrong thing, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and what the court said was there is no legislation that covers this particular circumstance. There is nothing in the law that says they can't use this methodology of reaching out to people and then so send it back to Congress to come up with new Facebook robocall uh, rules of the road so they can't do that. Um, so, again, it's a narrow ruling based on this particular circumstance. It decided on the fact that the set of rules that Facebook was sued under do not apply, even though all of us logically would think they're bothering us at dinner time. It's pretty much the same thing as a robocall. Right. And that pesky little thing called the law actually, like someone actually looked at the law and applied, applied it very narrowly, you know, but again, you know, I, I almost, I want to get John's opinion on this. I almost get the feeling that 
God, because God knows uh, Facebook has a lot of detractors, many of which are on this call. <laughs> the question <laughs> is that are people, uh, is the um, atmosphere so anti Facebook that even though the decision may have been, you know, uh, been uh, ruled um, accurately because of the very narrow inter inter uh, interpretation of the law itself, that, oh, you know what, at, at a macro level, at the end of the day, it's really the interpret. Does the implementation of how a robocall is uh, is conducted? Does that is that material to really what the intent of that uh, of that lawsuit was all about? So, uh, you know, you get into that kind of um, you know that kind of quagmire. John, what's your thoughts on that? Do you? I mean, are you are you disappointed in, in, in the decision? I, I'm definitely disappointed, but I also think, gee, if you're silly enough to give Mark Zuckerberg your phone number, hey, you kind of deserve to get called whenever, all right? I mean, that even the birthday thing, that I don't understand. Most of my friends have fake birthdays on there and reply to thanks for the fake birthday wishes and stuff. That's just not something you should do. You know, they should not have your phone number. Um but be that as it may, I'm totally disappointed because the whole point, as, as, uh, as Stuart just alluded to, was don't bother me. You know, I don't care if it's the Chinese consulate or if it's a warranty for the automotive, you know, the car I have or Mark Zuckerberg calling to check on Facebook. Who cares whether it's, I, that's not my business, it's his business. So the fact that they were able to do that just seems wacky it, of course it's the same thing why isn't it the same thing because it's a special business facebook no it's exactly the same thing so i don't john, get it john you're breaking my heart that they're actually <laughs> you're actually fake facebook profiles that's a news headline I oh, didn't yeah. know that, that uh, people actually put fake information in their profile on on in facebook i did not know that and i will take <laughs> Into consideration next no, time. No, it's I even better. They even say thanks for the birthday wishes when I know it's not their birthday, right? And they'll have 150 birthday it's wishes. Not, it's just amazing. Anyway, you don't, you don't have to be Inspector Clouseau to figure that out. Uh, Rob, your um, incredibly legalistic uh, view on this. I'm sure you <laughs> so I have to admit here, I, I did not actually pull up that particular ruling, but. As I recall from reading about the decision at the time, the court said, well, the law defines a robocall in this way. We have right. to stick with that. If Congress wanted to define it another way, they had plenty of chances to do it. And so in that sense, you know, yeah, I would say that the real problem here is not necessarily that, you know, people gave their numbers to Facebook and then Facebook called them. It's that Facebook said, give us your number for two-step verification for security. And then they said, without actually telling people, we're going to use that as a marketing signal as well. Right. They did get clapped on the wrist by that for, for that by the Federal Trade Commission. But overall, this is a case where, you know, yeah, the law doesn't actually address that. You know, I, I wish actually the court had been more literal in past cases. I'm thinking mm -hmm. of Aereo, the service that said, if we let you rent an individual TV antenna in a warehouse, we'll right. then beam that to your house which actually was legal under the letter of the law. The court said no, because, well, that looks like cable anyways. And Justice Antonin Scalia had a great dissent, which basically said loopholes exist for good lawyers to exploit. If you don't like it, go fix the loophole. Don't make us do it. Well, I think going back, before we go to the next, the next topic, going back to Stuart's point, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that the courts and the Congress, by the way, tend to be years behind where technology right. tends to be. And um, anybody who's watching any these congressional hearings, some of the questions that gets asked to the to the heads of Google, Facebook, and Amazon, you roll your and we're in the business. Obviously, we see the 
we're you know we're up to we're up to stuff on on all the key tech topics. But it's just amazing to me, just the the, the um, lack of sophistication in terms of some of the questions we're asked. So I'm not surprised sometimes that you see this type of behavior at the court level because I, and and by the way, they courts have a much more leisurely. Um, opportunity to look at the issues in a much more, you know, long-term strategic light. So there's probably less of an, an excuse, but at the congressional level, I absolutely agree with what with, with, um, Stuart um, said. Now this, Stuart, this is, I'm going to, it's, it's going to be hard for me to opine on this. I, I've, because um, yes. I have, I want to see this. I have not seen it yet. You scared me when you brought this up as a topic and you're scaring me even more. Maybe I have to cancel my HBO Max um, subscription, but let's talk about this because it has this 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 program Q into the storm has been um, pretty popular and it has actually gotten a lot of uh, it's generated quite a bit of noise. So talk to us about it. Well, I've only watched the first three episodes so far. It's it's sometimes a little difficult to get through because the the documentarian tends to wander a bit, but essentially he lays out not only the history of the QAnon movement, it's all online, but he talks about where the, um, the, the, um, the social media sites, starting with 2chan, then to 4chan, and then to 8chan, and Reddit, and how all of those things sort of gave birth to what is now known as 8chan, or 8kun, K-U-N. And it apparently all started with this one guy who... who who married the anonymity of, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to get this right. He took, he married Reddit to 4chan. One of them allowed anonymous um, subtopics and the other one was moderated and he sort of married them and came up with 8chan, which allowed complete anonymity, which turned 8chan into this hellscape of, very bad things. All the worst things that you could think of that people might post ended up on HM, and this is where Q started. And he tells the story of Q. It started with one guy, apparently got sold to somebody else, and he reveals who Q actually is. And it's apparently this father and son team who live in the Philippines and or Japan. Uh, you'll watch it. There's news stories already, so I'm not really giving anything away. But for me, the guy who originally started A-Chan, a guy by the name, I think his name is Fred Brennan. He, he's yeah. severely disabled. Um, and he sold it because he didn't like what it was becoming. And during the course of at least the first three episodes that I've seen so far, he even says that somebody's got to step in and do something about this. He, he did it because he was in favor of free speech. But even now, he thinks that this is the illogical conclusion of free speech and it's a little scary what is out there how people are thinking what they're willing to pose even anonymously and what free speech is essential this kind of free speech essentially with QAnon has done to our political society so it's it's scary on so many levels and it harkens back to the whole legal thing how does the government deal with the issues of both free speech and the idea of these privately owned bulletin boards, which is sort of like a supermarket putting up a bulletin board. The supermarket owner gets to decide what's on the bulletin board and what isn't, as opposed to newspapers that are governed by libel laws. So it's it, it opens up multiple cans of worms in terms of how do you deal with this and what is our who 
in our country or around the world, who who are we neighbors with? John, John. Yeah, look, I've got friends who have uh, <clears throat> sent me a lot of links about um, vaccinations taking over our brains and, you know, us being infected with this thing so we can have mind control. And that's all QAnon stuff. It's pretty out there and trying to explain as a science reporter, you know, how we should position this information so that people don't get these strange ideas or how to combat against these strange ideas has been a topic of conversation for a long time, way before QAnon came on, you know, the days of CompuServe and the well, back in the well, people, celebrities would argue on the well then, and there was a lot of discussion, should you be anonymous? Should that be even allowed? Um, and I think we're sort of, it's just been ratcheted up to, you know, literally a pandemic level. Now, what do you do? Um, so it's, it's a scary topic and it's also been a threatening topic, um, you know, before the pandemic too, and covering cybersecurity. If one was to say a certain thing or write a certain article, I won't say what it was about or who it was about, but then there was, the threat was that people would send SWAT teams to your house. Things like that were happening on a pretty regular basis. So it, it's, it's uh, scary in a lot of different levels. Rob. Yeah. So this, touches on a bunch of different problems. Number one, this is the whole issue of online anonymity versus pseudonymity. Like Reddit gets a lot of grief on this front, but what it does have is an effective system of persistent pseudonyms. Like if you're gonna be a jerk, we don't need to know your name, but everyone else will know who you are on that site. You have this karma score that follows you around and Reddit's management, they took way longer than they should have, but they have cleared out a whole lot of that trash. Um, but then it's like every few years, some idiot thinks, I'm going to launch a startup. It'll be total freedom, complete anonymity, no rules. Stop being an idiot. We've seen this movie before. I mean, I've been on online communities since Usenet was a thing in the mid-1990s. Total anonymity on a large scale doesn't work. The, the fraudsters, the scammers, the griefers always show up, guaranteed. And this is just the latest chapter of that. Nowadays, we're more dealing in terms of what is the responsibility of other companies that enable this. You know, if you're a Facebook, a Twitter, a Reddit, you should definitely be kicking those people off because they've gone off the deep end. Um, what about a more of an infrastructure provider? Do you have a right to an internet protocol address? You know, there aren't great answers to that. Uh, one thing I am sure on, sure of is you certainly shouldn't be forcing private companies to do business with creeps like the horrible human beings behind 8chan right now. Right. I forgot one word too, Scientology. You know. Oh look, yeah. <laughs> this is this is kind of like that. And look, it doesn't matter how many people come out of it and explain what it's about and where it's from and all that. It's still there. You know, and it's considered a cult in some countries. It's basically banned yeah. in countries in Europe. But here we are, you know. Yeah, I, I and I, I completely understand where you guys are coming from. I, what I struggle with, though, is at the end of the day, you know, freedom of speech, while it's not absolute, there are, and it's not that there's limitations, but the, the courts have ruled that, you know, the famous court ruling that you can't go into a theater and, and, and scream, fire, uh, there's a fire. You know, there's implications for saying that. You can say it, but guess what? There's going to be implications. <laughs> <You> <laughs> get arrested. 
<laughs> you, you'll write a book and make a lot of money. No, no, no. What is this theater thing? Are you saying people would go into an indoor space with crowds and things? Call me crazy, but yeah, there are people who will do that. I, I, I just what I struggle with is that the, and, and I really do believe that that the answer to um, suppressing um, bad speech is not suppressing it. It's you know more. It's, it's that whole line about the, the answer to it is more free speech. And I do agree with along the lines of the fact that you know at least having a little bit of uh, control over where it comes from. The Reddit example that uh, Rob that you talked to, I think that you know that is a step in the right direction. But at least you know where it's coming from, versus this kind of shotgun thing where there's there's, there's this void of, of a world out there with with stuff that's so scurrilous. I mean, I don't think most people know of some of the things in the dark web that are it's it's really a bad place. It really, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm being actually, I think, kind by saying it's, it's really a bad place. You know? Well, I think a lot of the issue, going back to this whole anonymity thing, and I've been thinking about it in terms of history and the, the traditional media that we all grew up with. If you wrote a letter to a newspaper, an editor letter to the editor, you could choose to not sign it, that you could have it be anonymous. But the newspaper publisher needed to know who you are. Uh, Primary Colors was published by, I think, SNS um, under Anonymous. But SNS knew that the author was Joe Klein. Right. So there is anonymity to the public, but the people who were putting it out there knew who you were. And so the answer to this may very well be, or at least somewhat in part of, that you can be anonymous online. But if somebody wants to come after you to sue you legally, the people who have put your stuff online has to know who you are. And if there's a court order because you've, you've committed libel or some other fire in a crowded theater kind of thing, remember, free, free speeches is only thought, not action, which is where that fire in a crowded movie theater comes from. Exactly, exactly. If, if you're promoting action, it's no longer free speech. Unfortunately, on, on, on things like HN and on the dark web, there's action all over the place. We've heard it all recently talking, you know, which is what the um, the the one six prosecutions are all hedging on is all of this stuff that had been suggested by the by the people who attacked the Capitol. They were promoting action in their communications, which is not free. The other part of this is private versus government action. Remember, the First Amendment only applies to the government. And the government can, can certainly make a rule says you can't let anybody be anonymous or you have to know. That doesn't infringe directly free speech. But if you... Well, actually, since the federal papers were published under pseudonyms... Well, if you own a bulletin board, a lot of you are not covered by free speech, which is what allowed Twitter to take President Trump out. That's, that's their bulletin board, and we don't want this person on our bullet board. So there's That's this right. private ownership versus government ownership where yeah. you're dealing with the first amendment. Yeah. We, we got to get to the next couple of topics, but okay. this, yeah. by, this by itself could be a podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> dedicate to this. And, and the only thing I'll leave you with, it'll be very curious to see um, purely from an implementation standpoint that if, you know, Trump is going to reemerge with some time other social media platform, it'll be interesting if there's no carriers that will, enable him how does he get the word out you know it goes back to what you said a few moments ago uh, Stuart. i mean he could 
letting stopping him. We'll call up John Hannity like usual. Let's <laughs> <Right>. change. <laughs> yeah, but I think he's. I think he wants to go a bit deeper than that. I mean, he's looking for a twenty four seven type of vehicle, not just to be able Who to call that. <laughs> well, it's twenty four seven of any politician. Much very less to see what happens there. All right, before I talk about this new Rome portable speaker that just came out, do any of you guys have portable speakers? I mean, do you have? Uh, in- oh Johnson? yeah. John, John, what do you use? What do you? I'm just oh God, I, I have uh, a dozen or so different speakers. Um, so uh, a lot of different things from you know things like uh, um, the Alexa tube one, um, mm-hmm. the Logitech ones. Uh, I like a Klipsch one actually. I'm looking right here. The Klipsch is an old favorite of mine that I actually think sounds better than most of them. Um, but yeah, I use a lot of them. Although not traveling too much, so <laughs> you know, not not taking very many speakers. Uh, well, yeah, I, I will say, you know, and I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes. This is not again. I'm not being paid by. Uh, <laughs> I'm not being paid by, by anybody to promote this. I did get a, my hands on a sample of this new Sonos Rome speaker, and it's $169. It replaces their their. They had a a, um, a heavier and bigger model called the Move. Um, and I've always liked Sonos. I mean, the quality has actually been quite good. The audio quality actually is quite good for something in a form factor this small. Um, I've only had it for a few days, but um, it, what's neat about it, you can, it, it will pair with other speakers. So you could buy a couple of sets of these. At $169, it's very, very affordable. Um, but the sound quality in such a small form factor is really very impressive. I, I mean, this would not become my speaker for my home entertainment system. But I certainly would use this. It has a built-in uh, microphone, by the way, so you can use it for um, uh, for um, um, conferencing and, and, and things like that. Uh, and uh, what's really cool about this is apparently you can use it in I, – I hope I'm not wrong about this. I think you can use this in depth of water up to 30 feet. So, you know, Rob, in your jacuzzi, which I'm sure it's, it's, it's 30 feet, <laughs> use that and drop in. But I'm just kind of curious, guys. Do you, um, Rob, are, do you use a portable speaker in your day-to-day – no, like we have a, a few around the house and uh, the, they haven't gotten used in forever because the, the normal use case is you're having people together in the backyard. Oops, not there yet. Um, so, it's but a, yeah, I mean, Fitch has been interested in this. Uh, I'm also just impressed at the sort of journey Sonos has made because when they started, they were selling whole home audio at a really expensive price. And I thought, uh, you know, I'm not the customer for this. Most people are not going to spend that much. But here they're competing pretty effectively against the likes of Apple and Google and yeah. Amazon. Oh, they're a bar- they're a bargain against uh, against uh, Apple. I mean, up until recently, well, yeah, <laughs> that HomePod Mini, but versus that larger HomePod, the original one, which was uh, I think it was over fifty bucks. Yeah, it was an expensive. And by the way, it had issues when it came out. I mean, we we I think we've talked about that. Um, before, but you're right. You know, Sonos, from a brand standpoint, has always been synonymous to high end, and 169 dollars is not cheap. But it's certainly in a uh, in a price band that they typically have it compete. If people see that and think this sounds like a Sonos, then yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, it's it's a good size. I mean, Sonos is remember the first mover sort of in this. I remember when they did those first speaker, and I'm like, okay, so it streams Rhapsody. And nobody really subscribes to Rhapsody. Yeah. And and that's all you do. It seemed like, wow, okay. But now, of course, they had the foresight to see what was going to happen. Um, I was using it just the other, this weekend, using um, 
title, right? That you can do high res audio over the speakers now. It supports that. Um, and they have a DSP in the speaker that knows what the service, what some of the shortcomings are of that particular streaming service and tries to like tweak the sound a little bit. So they're just being a little smarter than your average bear. You're being a little smarter than your average portable speaker. So I think that's, that sort of kept them there. And uh, yeah, I, I, I do like them. I, I do like them. I still have like the B&O Zeppelin, that big, not yes. much portable yeah. speaker, yeah. but um but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I do use the portable ones, though. Unlike Rob, I have one in the bathroom. I have a big one in the kitchen. I still have a Braven somewhere in case water spills on it, you know, so I use them all the time. Well, my guess is at $169, you're probably going to move um, a few of these. And it has some advanced features. You know, you can move it within the home and it will, you know, it will seamlessly um uh, transfer the music from one device to another device, which is kind of cool. You know, if you've got multiple units in your home, but will it resist having my cat try to knock it off a surface? I don't know. I don't think it's cat resistant. So oh. that's not, not it. Mm -hmm. Sue, I'm curious. What do you use? Do you have? Is there a? I, I, I use this tiny thing in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's recharging the J. There's a JBL. Um, the um, I, I have a couple of uh, ultimate ear booms, which I always thought were. Oh the, yeah. The, the top of the market here, and they're much less expensive than the Sonos. You can get a, a boom for like $130 or even $100, depending upon the size. So the ultimate ear booms, I, I thought, but there are easily a dozen of these from variety manufacturers that are waterproof, that sound really good, that pump out bass, that can be paired to create stereo or even surround. So this is this is not a new product area. I think what Sonos is counting on is to integrate it into their whole home system. system most yeah. of these speakers don't do. They don't fit into a whole home system. So Sonos's entree is essentially, yeah, you could take it out and use it, but when you get home, you could put it in the kitchen and now it becomes part of your whole home Sono system. Right. So it's sort of like an Apple sort of thing. It fits into their ecosystem the way that other waterproof Bluetooth um, speakers don't. Well, and, and back to what Rob said a few moments ago is, you know, you know, your brand is a very important thing. And Sonos does have, like Logitech, Logitech has a very high-end brand association. You'll, you'll pay more for a Logitech mouse and you would pay for a, a knockoff mouse and you got to be careful and not wanting to give that away so uh, again 169 is not inexpensive but i think that will allow them to get to an audience that yeah you know what I, uh, for something like that i would use uh because of the brand and some of the capabilities that are built into it the audio quality i think is very very good for a portable unit uh, but you know the last thing i would say is that um it's always curious to me when, I, and I've seen different product shots, not just of this speaker, but other portable speakers that are waterproof, how people will use them in the shower. And I'm, you know, I'm saying to myself, you know, the one place you have privacy in the morning is taking a shower by yourself. Do you really want to hear music or hear the news while you're actually in the shower? I guess a lot of people do, but not me. I'm not. I just, now count me out of that. <laughs> you know, where else are you going to sing? That's the only place you can sing is in the shower. So, John, John, you don't want to hear me sing. Believe me. <laughs> and the last thing I want to talk about for a couple of minutes, so it was a curious um, topic that came up just a day ago. I think it was Kara Swisher uh, did an interview yeah. with uh, Tim Cook, and he, you know, said very explicitly that he does not expect to be the CEO. The man is sixty, and uh, he doesn't expect to be the CEO in two thousand thirty-one. I mean. You guys know a lot of executives in, in the tech space. There's not many CEOs that will kind of um, 
telegram, uh, telegraph their 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 future resignation, no matter how well the company might be doing. So that was kind of curious to me that he would actually signal that very explicitly, knowing that that was going to get a lot of airplay, which it has. Airplay, no pun, no pun intended. Um, but um, Rob, what do you th what did you any thoughts about that 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 Cook would make that kind of um, admission? So early well, it's, on. it's interesting, but I guess less surprising. Yeah, because number one, he is older than a lot of other tech CEOs. Uh, and number two, you know, he's not the founder. It's not, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, the company, same way. Um, you know, Sundar Pichai, also not the founder of Google, much younger. So right. Tim Cook is sort of in a unique position. Um, you know, it's who would take his place. Who knows? They've got 10 years to figure it out. Oh, they've got they've got a, they've got a deep bench, and believe me, yeah. they're I'm only saying there's jockeying at Apple going on. Who's going to get that job? But uh, I, my guess is, uh, given his operations background, you know, Cook has got a plan in place. I mean, there will be one or two people that will be groomed properly. You'll never know until the last moment, you know, because they don't want to spoof the street or um, you know, uh, you know, panicking yeah. that he's not going to be around anymore. And my 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 guess is. He wants to deliver one more big thing, and I suspect it will be cars. You know, because of all the rumors, and I, I think he'd like. I think if he announced car, some type of car project within the next uh, two or three years, or sooner than that, I think he could say to himself, "You know what? I didn't do too bad." You know, I think Jobs would be proud of what he was able to accomplish. John, what, what your thoughts? I don't think they have a chance at the car thing, and I'm probably in a minority, but I don't think they're that's that's a possibility for them. And and I wasn't surprised because, yeah, I, this is after the year of the pandemic. I think a lot of people in a lot of us have taken stock again and thought, you know, what do I really want to do with the rest of my life, you know, or when I grow up or whatever. And uh, I think it's just a sensible thing to him look at it and go, hmm, do, do I want to be here 10 years from now? Probably not. Um, the big surprise was on late Friday was um, Waymo, the chief executive of Waymo, yeah. self-driving car. He just stepped down out of nowhere. He's 59. Um, he's considered to be, you know, that is the leader in the self-driving autonomous car space. They're light years ahead of anybody else. No question about it. And he just stepped down, you know, well, I, that's kind of a shocker. What does that say about where the technology is? Or, or did he do this kind of thing where he looked at the last 12 months ago? I don't need this. You know, I want to do something else. It's hard to say, you know, how those changes, how it's going to affect some of these CEOs over the next couple of years. Well, you, you know, what, John, and you know, this all, all three of you know, this is that the, the CEO jobs out here on the Valley, or you could say that in other industries as well. I don't know how um, a lot of these CEOs maintain any type of family life. Because right. they're, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like when some, oh, I'd like to be the president of the United States. I mean, take politics out of it. I don't think I would want to be the president of the United States because you, you're, you're talking about privacy. Your privacy goes to zero. Every moment of your time is accounted for. And, you know, your life essentially gets sucked away. And it's not too much different for the average CEO. So, you know, kudos to, uh, to uh, Cook. For you know, signaling that. Although there's a lot of CEOs that like to hang on until the company goes into the ground. Cook's not like, <laughs> yeah. not, not like that. Stuart, any closing thoughts on the Tim Cook? 
Well, I think it's like all things. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. You know, um, I, Cook has done taking over from Steve Jobs. How daunting was that to begin with? And the fact that he has continued to move the company forward and introduce new product. I mean, nothing is groundbreaking into the iPhone or the iPad necessarily, but to continue that a lot of people thought that after Jobs passed, that the company was just going to start going down again, like it did after he Jobs left, you know, um, when he was fired. So the fact that Apple has not only maintained but continued to grow and to grow in a positive way. Listen, not everything they do is perfect, but they have still managed to remain above the whole Facebook, Twitter, stealing your data fray in a way that I find very surprising, and has have still managed to expand. This, this was not an easy job. Now, I think, so I think the biggest thing to, to worry about, I think for almost everybody who has an interest in Apple is not who they're going to appoint, but what happens to the stock when he leaves? Because I think a lot of people, when he gets to the point where I'm about to leave, people are now going to start thinking, wait, he's done an astounding job. Is there anybody who's anywhere near as capable of him of, of running this behemoth? You know, um, so and I, I, and I can and I can assure you that the runway for this will be very long. Um, you know, if you recall, you know, Jobs, you know, signaled uh, when he was uh, sick for quite a bit of time that Cook was going to be the the heir apparent as COO, and, and essentially he became the. Uh, so I, I don't think this, the street was absolutely shocked. They had questions, of course. Does he have the, the innovation and product skill set? Uh, to succeed where Jobs was so, just so intuitively natural um, at that. Well, people thought that Cook was a functionary. That's, yeah. that's what really, because he came out of supply chain and how boring is supply chain. So a lot of people thought that he was a mere functionary and that things would just continue chugging along. And the fact that the company has just continued to blossom under his leadership, I think took everybody by surprise. And, but I think you're right. I think that he, he will be smart and he will say, this is the person who will be following me. And there will be a long transition period. So the stock price doesn't, you know, right. drop through the floor. So the question I have for you, Stuart, are you going to signal, are you going to be around in 2031? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you should ask. I have already made reservations to go to Buffalo, New York in 2024 for the next total eclipse of the sun, which is almost exactly four years from today. Oh, boy. Or three years from today. And I made those reservations like three years ago. After the last solar eclipse, I went online to look when the next one is. So in 2024, in early April 2024, I'm going to be in Buffalo, New York. I've made my reservations already. Well, Richard, we're, we're over time right now, and so I'm going to skip our predictions. We'll save our predictions for next week. There'll always be more predictions. Thank you, Stuart, John, and Rob, for joining me for today's podcast. Uh, please follow um, the podcast on our usual social media suspect partners. That's Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And until next time, have a great week.